Welcome to the Rockonomics Podcast number 19. I am your host, Dill, and today our guest is Billy Ryan, who plays guitar in the band The Bogman, who formed in Huntington, Long Island at the dawn of the 90s and became a must-see live act playing colleges, bars, and clubs around the Northeast. That eventually landed them a record deal with Arista, in which they released two albums for. And while mainstream success never materialized, their regional popularity never wavered as they continued to play sold-out shows at places like New York's Irving Plaza well into the 2000s. I caught up with Billy before he was to check in on a music mix for a film he and his brother and Bogman bandmate Brendan, say that ten times fast, are scoring as part of Ryan Brothers' music, and our talk went as follows. The place I think I'd want to start and kind of jump jump into it is, it's basically your, these are all your childhood friends, most most of them, right? Of the band, of the six? Um, Billy Campion, my brother Brendan, and I from Huntington. So we started, uh, actually Brendan and I had a band before we met Billy Campion called The Still. The, st- the, the still? still? Or yeah. The Still? The Still. <laughs> okay. And um, then our drummer, Tony DeVito, stepped on a nail. and We had to do a graduation party. So we heard Billy Campion play drums, and he was a great drummer. So he played the gig out in Colmac, and he sang too. So next thing you know, we had a mic on him, and it was fantastic. <clears throat> so we started um, playing a band together. He joined our band, The Still, and then he, he brought, we were kind of into classic rock, and he kind of turned us on to, um, we probably listened to K-Rock, 92.3 and 102.7, right. and he really turned us on to like WLIR, like The Cure, <clears throat> uh, The Replacements, that kind of stuff, The Violent Femmes. So then we started doing covers, and then we started writing, just in our basement, and then the campings had like a shed in the back. That is older brothers. The old number seven band used to rehearse, so we would go back and forth. And then, um, so and are you like sophomores in high school or juniors or? That was in high school, yeah. And then we went to college, and still played in summers a lot. And we were like, three, actually, we were digging clams. That was like our summer job. Brendan and I, and Billy Campion. Um, Although he was on the later shift, mm-hmm. had to get up early. <laughs> <laughs> but you had, we would all sit out there in like these marshes and dig clams on our separate boats and drift, and we would think of like band names all day. <laughs> it was just like, and listen, Howard Stern. And um, any come to mind that you were fa- your and then favorites? The, the Bogman, oh God, uh, that'll come back to me. I'll tell you that. <laughs> but there, there were so many of them. But yeah, that whole game. But Mrs. Campion had had mentioned um, these articles in National Geographic about the Bogman, these these mummified bodies that were preserved for like you know thousands of years, and all the folk stories that came along with them, like these people that basically probably had too much to drink at a bar and just like passed out and kind of like werewolf from London, they just disappeared. That's and there were all these like stories, but they found them preserved. <clears throat> we're like, oh, that's cool. That could work. We were, at the time we were going for like a kind of like primitive sound. Yeah. So we did that. Uh, we're playing, writing a little bit, recording a little bit. Or are you recording it, at this at this stage? Um, we had one bass player, PJ La Mariana, that had some recording gear. 
and he lived in Huntington too. So, so just home. And then, then we or? started recording at Richmond Street, which was up by Huntington Train Station. This guy Bill Falvey, who was a real character, and then we did our we did like a a, a kind of an album or you know demos of all these songs. And then when we were in college, I was older than those guys. There were songs on it like King of Planet Earth and. The Light Show, pretty good songs. Mm-hmm. And then I went to Boston College and played in bands up there, and that tape got around, and then people really started to catch on. But then I think my the fall of 92 was my senior year, so it was fall of uh, 91. My roommate was in, um, his brother was in Faith No More, so he was really hip to like you know, the L.A. scene and music. And he's like, oh, dude, you gotta, we got to go down to uh, Lansdowne Street right next to Fenway. And WFNX was having like the, all these bands, Smashing Pumpkins, Candy Skins. School of Fish actually was the one band I, there was a song I liked on the radio. And then Nirvana. <clears throat> and I couldn't get into pretty much anything. But, oh, it's a School of Fish. And we saw Nirvana. And uh, I, it was great. It was like 300 people rocking out. And that's before they broke, right? Yeah. So, I, we, you know, we, of course, checked out. He kind of knew the guys. The man said, hey, what's up, man? We're che- I'm checking out the gear. Kurt Cobain's kind of dozing off, smoking a cigarette. And I thought they were, you know, really good. And uh, that was like October. And I think I was Christmas shopping on Newberry Street at that Newberry Comics, you know, buying some CDs. And I saw like Spin. I, and I got the Nirvana album like the, that week from a f- friend. Was that like? And I thought it was, was great. That, was that Bleach or was that no, Nevermind just never, came out? Nevermind. Okay. okay. And then so like within two months, then I see at, at Newberry Comics that he's on the cover of Spin, and I was just like kind of floored. Yeah. Like so much that I called my brother in Campion. I'm like, we got to keep writing. I saw this band. They're like, they're pretty good. I mean, I didn't think I wasn't blown away. Right. Well, I, I did. I read that that you said it was, it was inspiring. So that Christmas break, you guys kind of so that Christmas to... break, we were like, "What are we going to do?" And Billy Campion, we bait, we were sneaking into Hofstra University to and writing and recording with, with anything we had in his his dorm, which was illegal. And so we were like lifting amps over these like spike fences <laughs> and hiding from security. So then how did you guys, you guys started to get gain a following locally. So then and- that, then that was, uh, after that spring break, after that winter break, we would uh, take these trips down to, um, well, then I'd, I had also been hanging out with Mark Wyke, who I also played lacrosse with at Boston College, and we were writing stuff together too. And then I also met PJ at a party who had previously been to Providence where my brother was down the, down the road. So okay. we started to like, I remember there was one trip where PJ's like, where are you going Providence? And he jumped in my station wagon and we just all, he wound up at uh, my brother's place in Providence and somehow recognized Billy Campion because they would do the same open mic at, uh, I think it was a place called Fezziwigs. Like, wait, I know you. <laughs> You do uh, kiddos get what you want. And PJ used to do trucking, so they started laughing that they knew each other. And then Mark Wyke joined. So then it was uh, we had a drummer, Phil Williams, in between, and then Clive Tucker. We knew through Mark, uh, who was at Berkeley. 
Okay. So we started going down to uh, the bitter end and just playing gigs down there, and we'd drive back the night right after. It was kind of crazy, you know, drinking and all that. And then eventually uh, a guy named Mike Porciello from Huntington was in the business. He owned Rocket Cargo. And he would, uh, so he was in the business. He used to ship um, bands around, so he knew a lot of people, and he knew this guy, Gordon Meltzer, who was Miles Davis's manager, and brought him down. He liked it and signed us to like a production contract, and put it, they put us up in a house in, um, well, we wanted to be in Long Long Beach. PJ said it would be a good idea, but we found a house in Lindbrook, right down the street. Okay, so that you, so it's like a demo deal. So yeah, it was like a demo deal, deal and we spent a summer on the South Shore of Long Island, and uh, it was funny because we were we moved we found this house and they were paying our bills, and then we had um, a truck drop off all these all this equipment and said Miles Davis on it. So wow, we were like, that's cool. wow, that's pretty cool. And then we set up a studio and we did demos, and uh, that's where that started. And then what happened to those? Demos. They, They're in my attic, those tapes. But it's it's essentially, so Arista's got the first crack these, at you guys? These um, demos, well, we did a bunch of demos that summer, and then we had a couple of showcases that some, without going into detail, were a disaster. So uh, Atlantic Records passed, and um, we probably weren't mature enough. Um, so we spent, then our managers pulled out. They're like, uh I'm not going to say why, but right. What, at what point did you get management? Well, that was the first <laughs> first batch. Then they bailed out. Then we were like, because some of the parents, I had just graduated, but the guys were younger. So like, okay, do this for a summer, right? And um, and then we'll see what happens. But once the summer, we got the ball rolling. We kind of had the bug that we we would. Uh, we really liked what we were doing, so those guys wound up dropping out of school, which was kind of not oh wow, not a good that. thing. <laughs> it, it, everybody's you know parents were flipping out, and then we did it for another year, but we had to like all kind of scatter because we had a, a, a landlord that was looking for money and a manager that wasn't uh, paying anymore. They bailed on us. Okay, for prob- probably the right reasons. So we kind of scattered. Some of us were in Brooklyn. And just making ends meet and continue for another year. And we found a lawyer, Bob Donnelly, who um, really liked us and worked for free for a year until we started playing. We built up a following. Now, how did you do that? At this point, are you still, are you guys we touring? A, we, around, we just would play everywhere. We played at Rockaway. We played at, uh, up in Fordham, New York City. We played at uh, the Lion's Den. played The Village. Um, Billy Campion and I were busting tables at the Red Lion, and then there was a snowstorm, and then somehow the musicians didn't make it in, so we started playing there. So we started playing around the village. So that was an experience, too, just being in the village and playing. So it was kind of good for us to, you know, work on our chops. Right. So we did that for a year, and then we would we bought a truck. We got money enough. We were making money at uh, gigs and colleges, just driving and are you booking, My station uh, wagon got. Uh, are you booking yourself at this point? Yeah, but um, we started to get a guy booking us from the Lions Den in, in the village. Then when I crashed my station wagon, we had to think of something, so we got this big white truck that somebody, 
previous owner tried to convert it into like a makeshift Winnebago with like a sleeper and like a, a door with like a basic doorknob. It was just, it was pretty scary. It was like a couch in the back, but like there was no windows. So you would just like pray on the highways. It was all over the road. But we would get, we'd play down Georgetown and go to all these colleges. And that was really what was, was working. And, that, you know, if you couldn't find a place to crash, uh, you, could, you could just crash in that. <laughs> so, uh, so we did that. We built up a following. And then we were, we were kind of time gigs when college, when college kids were back, like Thanksgiving. We'd play, like, the limelight or something on, like, a Tuesday. And so we were just being smart about it. And then eventually we had record people interested. Um, How would you Mark, ca- Mark White, the bass player's brother, Dave, had a demo Oh, well, we, let me back up for a second, because we, we would go to Georgetown a lot, and they really liked us there, and we met this guy, Tom Venom, who uh, was writing a book about lacrosse, so that's what we were at a tailgate, and he knew these friends of ours, lacrosse players, and he um, <clears throat> was also, he was a writer, he was the senior ethnomusicologist at the Smithsonian, and then we found out, our friends like, you got to meet this guy, Tom Venom. He's, he's, he's got a lifetime um, backstage pass at Grateful Dead. Turns out he co-wrote this book, Drumming at the Edge of Magic, with uh, Mickey Hart. Okay. So we met him, and we were just like, this guy was great. He was so fascinating. And then he really you know, looked out for us. So when we played in Georgetown, he would put us up, and he introduced us to this guy. Um, I'll think of his name for in a second. Who had a studio? He was one of his like um, students, field recording. Um, Scotty Herzog, I think that's his name. Now, this guy, they'd done a lot of field recordings of Indians, mm-hmm. and he had a studio in Philadelphia. So then we decided, PJ's brother in law, um, Hector Murphy, great guy, put up some money. So we went to Philadelphia, the studio that was like in the ghetto, but it was like this bat cave door that opened and they were like in this great studio um so we did all these uh recordings that became more um um they started to get around you know we started passing around to our fans and those recordings i think eventually got assigned uh, D- dave white mark's brother gave the recordings or he was at a party and played it for lon friend mm-hmm. who had just started working for clive davis and he was the new a and r guy he was a writer. He was a rock writer. So Lon Friend was, uh, he was definitely interested. And so that spiraled into um, eventually Clive Davis coming to, well, Lon came to the limelight and decided to sign us. And then, then it went on from there. And then Clive Davis came to. How many people's limelight? Ir- Irving Plaza. You know, is it like limelight, well, like um, five hundred to a thousand, or is it? Yeah, I think it was probably close to you know. So here, here you are, an unsigned, you're an unsigned band, and you're you're yeah, selling the out these venues. Just, and it was like, yeah, it looked good too. Yeah. So he's he's interested in them. So, Sorry, you said then Clive followed up. And then Clive, you, you know, we actually were signed before Clive came, and then Clive came to Irving Plaza, which was a great show, and. Clive said to Lon, nice, nice job, Lon. <laughs> Did you meet him at this point, um, Clive? I think that was the first time we met him, yeah. Okay. And then are you, did you get new management by this point? That's- yeah, we, at that point we'd um, met, 
Invasion Management, Steven Supporta, Peter Casperson, and we just liked them. There were other management that we were supposed to meet, but I think we were just like somehow they sold us. I don't know if it was the right, right decision, but at the time we thought so. But at the time, and we we, they, we were kind of led to believe by our lawyer that it was a good thing, and probably was to have management before you go into you know a record deal. Right. I mean that that's when back in the days when people were getting record deals, you know. Right. So what was um, what was the deal? What they what was what was kind of their pitch? Um, it was a two record deal. It was a two record guarantee, and then after that, it was an option, and it could go on for like ten records if they wanted to keep you, but okay. it only only lasted for two. Okay, um, so like I said, let's get into the minutia of this all. So, you guys, what, what are you guys feeling at this point? It's like we've oh, I remember goal. we, we were um, we knew we were gonna, we were going to get signed. I remember. Uh, where I lived at the time on 10th Street, I think Billy Campion and, and PJ were there. We were all like, we got the call from our lawyer and we took turns like, that's right, Mama, I got a record deal. You know, we all did like <laughs> the same kind of phone call. Um, so that was exciting. And then I think, um, God, it's a long time ago now. Was there, I mean, was there also a couple like other people sniffing around, other labels sniffing around? Or oh, you guys yeah. Taking I mean, I, I'm, I'm forgetting a, a lot at this point, but there was other labels are you? definitely involved, but they were smaller. Okay. And we were hesitant to go with Arista because it was, you know, a major label, and this was the time of, like, you know, indie bands. Nirvana had broke through, but, you know, Nirvana broke big. Yeah. And that kind of changed the game. And that band, it's funny, that band definitely opened the doors. In, of the 90s until like the, the floodgates opened right. Seattle just went Shh. that's why when Seattle went through the roof Clive Davis was like I need to get involved right and they had Whitney and then R- R&B stuff at Arista but then we, we also, they also had the back catalog they had the Grateful Dead I mean I remember getting, well, I getting signed and we had uh, we loved the Grateful Dead taking a uh, a couple of vans to the Meadowlands <laughs> with Aris uh, and a bunch that, of our friends that was our lawyer. The, was that the show it was like Grateful Dead and Sting opening no this one I think it was um, Steve Winwood okay. or maybe just Traffic okay and uh, it was definitely Jerry Sleeper uh, it was sad oh, Jerry was, was falling apart wasn't, Jerry wasn't in top form <clears throat> but we had we had, a, we had a blast and they had uh, <clears throat> Aris had a, you know Patti Smith Lou Reed Amazing okay, catalog, so the, you know, basically that they just put out. They didn't really kind of bands that did their own thing, like the, you know, Arista didn't dictate that. Right. But then we got we we played, I guess, and then at some point we. Uh, but there were other small labels. I think there was a, a label called Hi-Fi. And that showed interest. Yeah, that were interested, but okay. nothing. Um, and then we really liked Lon Friend. We thought this guy was just the greatest, and he is. He's still a good friend. Um, and then the next process was like, who's going to produce you? And I remember a couple of us flew out to meet some producers. We met Mike Klink, who did Guns N' Roses. And right. he, were you like, are you kidding me? <laughs> this guy was like the nicest, straightest guy. You're like, you can't be the producer of. Uh, I guess he, it was. It was him. And he it was, was funny. He, so we, we spent some time with him and went to the studios in L.A. And then we went up to San Francisco and met Jerry Harrison. And we were like, you know, we were big Talking Heads fans. And sure. Especially my brother, Brendan. It's like, that was his favorite, one of his favorites, being a, being a keyboard player. Right. And what were you guys looking for at the time? What did you want to hear from them? 
from the producers. Yeah. Um, well, I, do, I think Guns, I mean, and, Guns like, and Roses was definitely not our, our thing. We were more like a Talking Heads. Um, you know, right. But did he recognize that? I mean, he wasn't, Clink wasn't one to say, hear your demos and say, I can, I can bring you, give you guys a harder edge. Or was he adapting to what you guys was, really were? He was pretty laid back. Like, he wasn't trying too hard to, to sell himself. I right. mean, he would have done it or not, I think. I think he was, he could have done anything. Sure. You know, he's really just a nice guy. Like, he, he I think he, uh, I don't know his whole background, but he was an engineer and this and that. And I, I remember him saying that Guns N' Roses were just not happy with anything they were doing. You know, every band goes through this because you're trying to, you have a sound and then it doesn't really translate. Yeah on um, record or CD. So, and then Mike Clink somehow did these mixes and Axel was calling him in the middle of the night. He's like, this is it. This is what, you're, you're the man, you nail it. <laughs> like he just got it right or something. So that was cool. That was, that was just fun to like check out LA and then and we wound up going back there over, over the years. And then San Francisco was great, but Jerry said he'd do it, but he'd been traveling so much, Jerry Harrison, that he said, I'll do it, but I'll, I want to do it. Do it there. Stay home because he's family. He, you know, he missed his family and he was building a house or fixing up a house on in Marin County. And um, so, yeah, then next thing you know, we were doing Tramps New Year's Eve, which was just a wild show. It was just out of hand. Is that prior to going to record? And then the next day we, like, flew out. Okay. Were you guys psyched to go to, oh, it was know, an adventure. Sausalito? Yeah, it was an adventure. We got out there. We lived on a houseboat. There was like, was that, that's uh, there was the house. Yeah, there's a houseboat because we recorded mostly at Studio D in Salcedo, so right over the Golden Gate, and then the record plant. We did most at Studio D, and then some stuff at the record plant, which is famous for so many, like Van Morrison. It was the San Francisco Sly and the Family Stone, right. a lot of stuff there. And, and at the time, Metallica was building one of these um, like uh, drum chambers that it was like a tunnel up into the sky. So we. We got out there, and that was like Fantasyland. I mean, it still is. I think the Marin County is just so nice. And, uh, and, and the houseboat was like the houseboat that every band that came out kind of stayed there. So it was, uh, we were like, this is great. We're on a houseboat. It's, it's, it really is beautiful. And then it was like, hello, are you that new band recording <laughs> in the neighborhood? So that was like, Everyone kind of knew there was a new band That's so funny. in town. So we met a lot of people, a lot of really interesting people. And um, then we, I think we started rehearsing up in, um, I think it was San Rafael. There were some cool studios up there. Um, I remember Santana was recording over there. That was all very exciting. So we just kind of prepped for the record. And then, you know, recording was new to us. So it was definitely uh, a whole new experience, especially... Um, back then it's not, it's, we were still using tape, but computer was a new thing. Right. Um, it's a fact I still have, I had some reason have some of these tapes that I probably sh- shouldn't, but they're Arista tapes in my attic. I have them. That's cool. And we were supposed to return. So we started recording and, um, you know, it took a while, but that was a process. And how long did it take? A couple months. And were you going? Would you take a weekend off and come back north to your family or anything, or were you pretty much? No, out there I the whole d- time? I didn't. Um, I went down to L.A. to visit some friends and a girlfriend, but for the most part, we stayed. Uh, the, 
I think the the rhythm section might have taken off when they were done tracking because mm-hmm. it, it took took a little too long. I think part of it was <clears throat> the computer thing was the Pro Tools Pro Tools was new, right? And the learning the curve. hard drive, <laughs> yeah, not for us because we weren't even doing that. But there was a lot of breaking down. I remember. Right. What about just? Um, Getting it in advance, you know, recording in advance. Did anybody explain to you how that, like? Yeah, know, we got I mean, some advances. We got like. But did that cover that covers the recording, the lodging, the time you're? I mean, was everything? Well, we calculated. I, I think we got a publishing advance. Now it's that was a separate thing, and it was it was all weird. I thought, you know, okay, we got a management, and then all of a sudden we had a a big publishing advance, and they took like twenty percent of it, you know, or at least. And then, um, but I understand they had to have administrative costs and all that, but they didn't really write songs. But then we got an advance from the record label. Well, everything was just put on a tab. Mm -hmm. I think by the end of, we probably owed recording, housing, all that. And then the, you know, promotion for the record, it was probably anywhere from 500,000 to. A million dollars. And as a probably young 20-something musician, did that worry you at all? Or were you like, that's, I guess, you're just learning that's the way Well, the we thought, is. you know, if we have a hit, we'll pay that off yeah. and then we'll make money. But it was a big tab. I think it was, everybody was putting that, you know, it's all recoupable. Yeah. Dinners and all that. We didn't really understand, I don't think got that at the time, or we didn't care. Yeah. Oh, they're taking us to dinner, but no, it's really we're taking every we're taking them out we're to dinner. Taking yourselves, there's out a to lot dinner. of that. Yeah, and it's, I don't, you know, I don't know what, what the business is like. If I feel like it these days, it's probably so much. If that goes on, you know, right? How much it's dwindled? I doubt how much. There's a lot of that. What about the um, the label checking in on you as as your as yeah, they. I mean, they were checking in on us because it was all about, you know, the vocals and that kind of slowed things down because Billy Campion was going through some stuff. So they were like, he was drinking and they you know, brought him down to L.A. to like do yoga and all that. <laughs> I remember our, our engineer, cause we were basically living on couches for the most part. And then we right. got all this money and then we're like, was to record so it was it happened fast too and Carl Durfler this engineer he's, he's kind of been around the block just brilliant and he's like I don't know man you know if he's been drinking and gigging and doing all this like I don't you shouldn't just stop you know let him do what it, what you're used what, to you right, know? right and um and the pressure was on it was definitely on him so uh it might have taken longer but we were all going through the same process because it was all all new to us, and right. it's like tapes rolling, clocks ticking. Right. It's not like today where I I can do this at home and edit, do a thousand takes. It's changed a lot. Yeah, but um, at what point are you done? Like, was it hard to actually stop editing with tweaking, the record? Yeah, I, overdubbing. I wasn't done. I know that, but it was just uh, I was like, wait, I want to do more overdubs here and there and this and that, but I think. There was one point like we got the vocals and we got what, what we needed. I don't think anybody was particularly happy with that record. Um, 
maybe now looking back, it's not so bad. But you know, when you have, especially when you have six guys, right. a record label has so many people, so many chefs. Right. You know, um, in retrospect, I think probably a, a good way would have to do the record. No offense to Jerry, I, I love him. Um, just let the band, a young band, just record them live. Get take, 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 take. Mm-hmm. Let it, let the energy go. Then kick back, edit, and then come back. Interesting. I mean, it's funny. I would have thought just it, was that the. I know you guys did a lot of demos and the demo deals and stuff, but were you, were you hearing something you never heard before in terms of uh, production quality or you know? I think we wanted it. Um, probably it more raw and right. experimental where right. they wanted it more commercial. It was Arista and they had, um, besides like their back catalog of, like I was saying, of the dead. And right. I think they had crash test dummies mm-hmm. and, and they had a hit with that, but we definitely were not into that sound. Um, what about the, you know, naming the album, the concept of the album, the album artwork? I mean, uh, was that a, did that come easily or was that like six, no, that, six guys yeah, butting heads? It, same, yeah. The, the process over and over, um, but Billy Campion I think came up with life. You know, it was like I think we grew up with that uh, T-shirt. Life begins at forty with our parents' generation. <laughs> now it should be life begins at fifty, maybe. You know, um, and was life a- begins at forty million. It was just a play on it, and you know, maybe it was hopes of making forty million dollars afterward, so in debt, and then. Uh, the artwork, we had a bunch of artists, but this was all presented from, from Arista. It was like we couldn't, kind of had our hands tied. So we right. had like four different um, people that. that well, that's interesting. In. So they had their yeah. whatever graphics department kind yeah. of interpret what they yep. think it should be, and you guys react. I wish I could remember the name. I'll get back to you on the name of the artist that we picked, and he did that, which I didn't like at the time, but I don't think anything was that appealing. Mm-hmm. But. At the time, we didn't know much about art or, or have... And we had friends who were artists, but it, they wouldn't consider any of our friends. So, right. Yeah. So now you've got your first album in the can. Uh, what happens now? They're going to promote it and throw you on the road? Um, let's see what happened after that. We came back. We mixed in New York and uh, probably had some listening parties. And then I think our first... Our first tour was with Shane McGowan and the Popes. So Shane McGowan was a singer of the Pogues. Okay. And we were big fans of the Pogues, that's for sure. And at least the Irish guys in the band were, <laughs> right. and, and still are. So when that came up, oh, then we got a book, and then we got a, a booking agent and then a business manager. So we had to get the other. And that's all something... 15%. So it turns out now it's 35% of everything. <laughs> so we got Steve Martin and uh, Mike Donovan from, from the agency. Great guys. And uh, Is that something the record label kind of steers you towards? Like, okay, boys, you got to... Yeah, or our, ma- our, ma- our management kind of did okay. that. There, Here's like some, you know... Bunch here's of, what you need to do. Yeah, to we could meet with a couple of, people that are, might be interested in working with you. And we went with this... Agency called the agency Steve Martin, Mike Donovan, and um, and they had a lot of acts that we liked. It's kind of more like Shane McGowan. I think they might have had maybe they had Sinead O'Connor. It's the Irish. Uh... Yeah, it was. Yeah, <laughs> um, 
But they, they had a, a cool roster, but nothing, you know, over the top. And we just, I think we were kind of like, even with our management, we liked the intimacy of something like, it, it, everything was happening fast. Right. You know, and then Arista, Clive Davis. So we kind of, if we liked you and we trusted you, we felt like that. So we went with that. And um, they put us on with Shane McGowan. And that was that was a wild tour. So was that you guys in a van traveling? Yeah, we usually had a uh, on that trip. Was not a tour bus. That was like a van or a van and a rider truck. Was usually we had a road crew. We started in Boston. Did you go all over? And we yeah we went up to. Well, unfortunately, Boston was a wild night. It was like the night that Jerry Garcia died, and it was all on Lansdowne Street. So they had Shea McGowan, and all, you know, all those places are connected. And and those Irish guys, were, they were wild. Shea McGowan was wild. And it was just, there's something in the air. And I think my brother was next door. After we played, we were so excited. Like, it was, you know, packed house and so on. And then um, he was slipped on a beer bottle at watching some punk band i think it was corrosion of conformity so that was a weird night when he wound up in the hospital so he had to get surgery we met he met us in toronto and then we went i think did he miss a gig i don't think he missed a gig though no he i don't think he missed a gig and then uh we went toronto down to like detroit Chicago and then Chicago there was another band on the bill called the Waltons and they were you know kind of like the Waltons and they were not fitting in I think the, the Joe from from uh Joe Bob the, Joe from yeah <laughs> Joe Bob from uh Shane's manager's like Bogman we're kicking the Waltons off the bill and he wanted to finish the tour because they were also on the bill so it was like uh sure so we got money to Tour support, we called our manager, so we went from Chicago um, on to Minneapolis. Then we did San Francisco. We did the whole West Coast, down to L.A. I think we ended in L.A. How, so how many, was it like a 20-day tour? Something or? like that, yeah. And I remember these guys, the Irish guys, they were so excited. They just did a video with Johnny Depp for the for the Popes. It was Shane McGowan and the Popes, and... Uh, when we could get to the House of Blues, Johnny Depp's going to be there. <laughs> was he there? No, they were just... Uh, we were like friends with these guys at that point. They were like, fuck Johnny Depp. <laughs> you know, yeah. So that was our first tour. And then, um, you know, we just kind of dug it out from there. At some point, we went on toward Bare Naked Ladies. We did some dates with Kiss. Now, I know the Kiss dates are kind of infamous. Was that Was that for... Life Begins tour. Uh, I think that was that, that, that was actually after the second album, and did a couple of days with Ramones. Well, that's cool. That was cool. Get to oh, hang out with them or get any no, quality time. No way. They just right out of the van straight to the microphone. <laughs> a funny thing happened on the way up to Albany. The KKK took my baby away. One two three four. <laughs> you know, that was cool. Um, so at any point when you're touring at you're touring, the album's probably doing okay, right? But not breaking any... I think it was good out of the gate. There, But there was some bad... There was... I see. There was... Now, um, we did this Rolling Stone-sponsored tour some, somewhere after our first album. I think it was after the Shane McGowan. And that's when really... It was a college tour. 
and it was dry. A lot of these colleges were dry, and we were like the, the uh, headliner, but we were on last, and it was it was just would empty out. So we were like, all right, let's go on first. But that was kind of a test. That was kind of a um, you know, it was getting depressing. You know, just working and playing like, and I didn't understand. I thought that was I disagreed with our our agencies like, and everybody. We we had this fan base we built on our own. Right. In all these pockets, all right? And to this day, I feel the same way. There's pockets all over the New York area, Boston, up and down the East Coast. You know, we did that on our own. And then for like a year, we disappeared. And I thought that was kind of a mistake. How far south did you guys get in terms oh, we of played, building um, your own? I remember we played in Daytona for spring break. At one point, we were in the you know the panhandle of La Vela. La Vela. <laughs> there at Chumbawamba. All right, fellas. What playing with Chumbawamba? We did. Yeah, we were on the That's same funny. field with them once, once or twice. Well, I think one time was in in Orlando at like the uh, House of Blues there. Like, right. And but uh, I remember getting to this La Vela at the Panama City. She's like, I right, fellas, after um, after sound check, just you guys are staying at the hotel right down on one across from the show and tail, the show and tail, the show and tail. <laughs> was that a strip bar? Strip bar. <laughs> and we were there for like a couple of days, but it actually was nice because we were on the on the um, Gulf, and we just like we had t- a couple of days to kill. That's nice. Yeah, the van thing. Back then, it's like I, I could do it now because you have your you know text, touch base right. with your family. Back then, it was like your calling card. Like, hurry up, man! You know, <laughs> yeah, totally. It's Waiting funny. on the it's phone. Funny to think. Yeah, totally closed off. <clears throat> Um, the Rolling Stone sponsored tour, was that any extra money for you guys? Was that a bonus to like, hey, get on the tour here? No, it was all about getting exposure, and I, it didn't really work. Right. Yeah. So, I, I'm, you know, when looking back, I don't know if Arista was the right way to go because a lot, of, a lot of DJs wouldn't even, you know, consider it. They didn't like Arista. They didn't like their, what they were doing at the time, right. you know, their whole R&B stuff. So it wasn't cool. And they couldn't get, it was hard to get over that. Right. Unfortunately. What about, um, I don't want to forget, the video, Suddenly. What was that process like? Was that similar? You had to meet with directors or get um, Yeah, but we did. We had a couple of directors presented to us, um, you know, like the producer thing. I mean, that was, Clive was like, okay, you can, Mike Clink, Jerry Harrison. Same with uh, these producers, uh, video um, directors. And the one we decided on was Matt Mahern. You okay, know, and um, out of all all the ones we picked, our hands were kind of tied, so we had a limited. Right, it was all wh- whoever had a hit on MTV. But again, are they so? Are they giving you a vision of like they listen to the song and they say, "This yeah, is Matt, this Matt is Mahern, what I'm seeing." Matt, yeah, Matt Mahern saw that and he just kind of wrote it, and we spent a day at uh, Don Hills down on Spring Street. Okay, and uh, had a blast. Yeah, I thought, I thought yeah. it looked looked. Somewhat familiar, the streets. Yeah, that was, that was that, the whole West Village back then. And then yeah. did Matt actually do your uh, artwork for your second album? Oh, yeah, yeah. That's right. So you conclude, where, where, which, what's your headspace at this point where you've supported the, you know, you did a long tour supporting the album, maybe it didn't hit expectations. We were growing pretty weary, you know. What were the songs? Morale was starting to sink. It was kind of like... Yeah. Was it just strictly album sales or you're getting word Album that, like, sales, being on the road. Um, it was it was wearing us out, you know? It was like kind of... 
I don't know. Do we go the right, right way? Right. I, you know. Um, so to, then, to do it all over again, I don't know if, if I would, definitely would wouldn't do some of the tours we did. It just seemed like a waste of time. I right. would just capitalize on the, what we had, try and get on an MTV, which sometimes I, th- I know from talking to certain people, it just takes some money. Right. What about uh, when you end the, I guess this album cycle? Did you have any money in your pocket from it all, touring and, I guess album sales. We ha- we were making a lot of money, uh, mostly when we were back in New York because we could we would always nail Irving Plaza. We'd love come back to New York because that was, I mean, we must have done you know Irving Plaza twenty times. We can make money, and and we would get good deals because we had a fun crowd and they drank a lot. We had a lot of uh, record breaking sales in in mm-hmm. that department. So I've heard. So. It was always good to come back home and and we just wanted to get back to writing. Like that's all we ever wanted to do. Right. And then you're out there on the road and you're like, oh, I just want to be in the studio because we could be so much better. And I, I think every musician feels that way. It's okay to tour, but you got to have something that you really love. Right. I don't think we were totally satisfied with anything, but that probably happens all the time. Yeah, sure. Know? So so how do you look? What what's What's the mood looking forward to recording the next album? Recording um, the next album captions. was total. Um, it was it was tough. We we really sought out to to you know get our own vision. So we tried to, and it was also the times where like the music got darker. I think it was probably our disillusionment with the business. Right. When was that? That's where are we? Ninety. 98? Is that when it came out? I think so. Yeah, wow. I'm trying to think what's going on in that time. I mean, it's grunge has kind of already yeah. peaked. It's not It's not like corn and like, it, trying to think what's dominating yeah, MTV well, I don't, charts. I don't know what was going on then. Um, but where's the, where's the, where's Arista at this point? Are they putting any pressure on you? Are they cutting your budget? Yeah, they were kind of cutting back. Like I got the impression that you guys did closed caption on the cheap. We com- did, yeah. We were finishing it at uh, Friends Studios. We actually um, were recording with Bill Laswell, who's amazing. Uh, yeah, and how did you again? How, how did, so you were saying you guys wanted to take control? Did you seek that out? We liked Bill Laswell because he had this renegade um, attitude. He had Axiom Records. He did all this kind of got- stuff from like. Um, uh, Motorhead, Jagger, Herbie Hancock. Yeah, the Jashuka <laughs> Indians. Her, yeah, uh, it was kind of Yoko Ono. Um, so we were definitely interested in that, and we liked him. But I think he 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 got a nice paycheck, and he just kind of wanted to wrap it up because he had a lot going on. He just got a new studio that we were working at in Orange, New Jersey. And as much as we liked that, we weren't we were like we're not done. Right. So we wound up having it got a little. Um, got a little weird, contentious at the end. Yes, so we t- we went up taking the uh, the tapes out and finished them on our own with Godfrey Diamond at um, our friend's studio. So we were just taking taking the off hours for cheap. Okay, and you know coming out in the morning, trying to get it done. To, so we did the best we can to get it how we wanted it. And then was there less fanfare? Uh, 
putting effort behind it from the label? I mean, did you have the release party, and did, was it as, as much to do maybe it's, as your first well, album? I think, to be honest, I think the label kind of got irritated with us, especially when they had all decided on one single. And I think it was probably the most appropriate single, which was Mexico. And the certain members of the band didn't, I don't, for some reason, wasn't happy with it. They already printed out everything, the whole campaign. And for Mexico. Yeah. And then you, that wasn't the lead single. Then, well, it, 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 we, we wound up changing it, Okay, unfortunately. Um, and I think that kind of pissed off the label. They're like, oh, these guys are paying the ass. And I, At the end of the day, though, are you paying for that mistake? I mean, I know you're paying like yeah, in, that just in, goes in a on larger world, but it's yeah, it's your bill. I mean, when they wound up dropping us, so we didn't owe anything. Right, right. And, and when that point came, everybody was like, oh, cool, we can get a, you know, and a hip label, indie label, and then it got and then it got then, then music yeah. became free, and then right around there, yeah. I mean, that's probably the turn of the century, right? Yeah, two thousand, two thousand one. Yeah. Um, exactly. Any any highlights from closed caption radio tour? Or, you know, did you guys did, did you guys put a year on the road after that too? Or we did a lot of. Um, we kind of got back to what we were doing before we even got signed. We were so like just doing the Northeast. We go would back do, to who knows, you know, you Thursday, know. Friday, Saturday, Sunday runs, and then come back to New York City. And I, that was kind of good because we were, you know, the money was going back in our pocket, right? And, well, <laughs> rather than paying it, we were making a lot of money for a while, and then it's like, why are we making around two hundred dollar a week salary? It was a lot of weird stuff like that. And was that so? Was it good news at the end of the day? If when you eventually cut ties with Arista, like you're saying, were you like we're freed up now to pursue? We something thought that it was, but it, it was kind of like the ship was sinking, and right. it, people were starting to move on with their lives. Like maybe you know now music's free, so um, we all kind of had to find ways to survive after that point. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it was bartending and. Clive wound up going to study Chinese herbal medicine. Mark got into, you know, became a music supervisor. And then my brother and I started Ryan Brothers and started doing jingles and then eventually soundtracks. So, okay. So, how long have you been, how long has Ryan Brothers been open? You guys? Since like 2000. Okay. Yeah. So, so gosh, you guys are almost 20 years old. Uh, yeah. And uh, as you were saying, a lot of, I've, I noticed a lot of success with that. Um, Fever Pitch and the Heartbreak Kid and um, the new Ferelli comedy. Is that a comedy? Oh uh, the, yeah, uh, there's a louder milk. louder milk. We have yeah. some stuff in that. Um, just the other day, we got a license uh, for a song. We have one act uh, with uh, Julia Haltigan called Luan, and we licensed some stuff for Louder Milk and NCIS LA the other day. So that's a, this is the whole new and and the Green Dolphin where we're going to mix today is a, okay. a movie by um, Chris Keneally. And um, we, had, we had worked with Chris Keneally on another project called Side by Side, which is a good documentary, great documentary, where Keanu Reeves is interviewing all, you know, Martin Scorsese, George Lucas, all these great directors about how Hollywood is going digital, which is... It's important for all right. For, it's it's interesting. It's been in the works for a while, hasn't it? That's been out there for a couple of years, and okay. 
it's good to see because, yeah, you know, with the cameras are getting better where it used to be like, all right, well, you know, hope the dailies, the dailies was this, you know, exciting yeah. thing. A lot like the recording thing, sure. you know. But now it's like you could just go over the camera and, you know, you know what it's going to be. It's done. Yeah. Um, and also, do you guys still perform with uh, Graham? Is it uh, Gordon Gano? Gordon Gano. Oh, yeah. We did uh, We did an album with him and we re-recorded like 40 songs, another album which we might put out. But we haven't played with him in a while since he got back with the Violent Femmes. Okay. He's kind of got back with them. At, they... We recorded with Gordon and became friends with them in the West Village and wound up writing a ton of songs together. Some songs have been licensed for like Fairly Brothers uh, movies. And during that whole time, he was in a lawsuit with the bass player. So it was kind of funny. We witnessed all that and how it got so heated. And I remember being in, in the studio at the Carriage House in Stanford and Gordon's a pretty amazing guy. He just had stacks of cassettes. Yeah, like if you go to his house, it's just like a big storage closet library. Believe it or not, I know where everything is. And he's right. So he had like stacks of stuff because he had to sit down with a lawyer and his bass player and hash it out. So they whatever they figured it out, and then they got back together. Was that more of a, a publishing thing? Like who? It was who a wrote, song, it was a songwriting thing, I think, between them. Uh, I mean, I'm not saying anything that's not, you can't look up. Right. Um, but in a similar way, like the song, Whiter Shade of Pale, that became an issue, which was compared to Gone Daddy Gone by the by the Femmes, where Gordon probably wrote the song. Mm-hmm. And then Brian came up with, ding, 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 all these parts, which are hooks, just like the organ part in Whiter Shade of Pale. Like he didn't, Probably didn't write that song with the rest of the guys, but you know, for years that opener, and I'm sure John Lennon was like, you know, he he loved that song, so right. everybody said you should get songwriting credit. So that decision was has gone both ways. I don't even know. I think it went back to he didn't get credit, but I don't know. <laughs> it's yeah, it's it's complicated. So during that, that was uh, we did a little tour in England and Ireland, some festivals with Gordon. Oh, that's cool. And we still communicate with him. Did you ever go outside the U.S. with the Bogman? No, no. We, we were about to, and then we were also about to do the, the Woodstock, and then the the what yeah, was that? The that second was one, yeah, right? I think. How'd that and fall And we through? just we just pulled the plug. We decided to take a break. Oh, wow, any regrets? You know, if, what, it's just <laughs> I don't know. It was just time. We were getting, we were fighting. Yeah. You know, it was just becoming like your typical. Uh, VH1 behind the music like they got the record things were good you're on the road and it just gets tough yeah I can imagine I mean it's I mean it's funny that you guys are you know such uh, long time friends I mean I guess the core of you guys I mean maybe. and we all we still are which is kind of good yeah we all get along and um, now some of the guys have families maybe we'll get together in 2018 if we can figure it out yeah but, um I mean, it's we still have like a lot of fans. We get it all the time. People just love it, especially in New York area. What's up? <laughs> Do you Go. have? Are you guys still your um, is your website link live anymore? Um, like a, a Bogman site. It, there is a site and, and a Facebook page too, which okay. you know it's just a little inactive because we're not doing anything. Sure. Yeah. 
Um, but a place where the fans can find yeah, you. Yeah, um, you can check it out or, or go to Bogman Facebook page. We usually plug in. We'll update some stuff. Yeah. Actually, I've since I moved out of the city, I I, I lived in Weehawk in the last few years, so I think every, all the Bogman stuff got dumped over there. And now I'm like unraveling. Like I'm finding. Like accounting stuff. Like I should have went. I could have got over a little before this, but uh, <laughs> and tons of like CDs, from, uh, like cassettes and CDs from gigs, and so I may put together a, like a compilation, put it out there while we're inactive. That'd be cool. You know, uh, what kind of accounting stuff? Receipts and stuff, or you know, like uh, all the all the Bogman accounting stuff. I, somehow my wound up at my dad's place, and then they moved, so now I have everything. A lot of pictures. A lot of archives. Oh, very cool. Yeah. Well, if you want, uh, if if you find any and can digitize them, yeah, I think s- I think them, I might send them to me, and I'll uh, I'll p- promote the show with them. Great, great, I will. Um, so I wrap up every show with the same five questions to the, all the guests. So let's uh, let's go there. All right. First question is: uh, What's your most prized musical possession? Um, you mean something we wrote or something? Um, probably material if it's, yeah, something you own. I think it's going to be a guitar. Any particular, uh, probably. Do you have a, do you have a baby you want to be buried with? It'd probably be my, I have a Gretsch, 1965 Gretsch Country Gentleman. It's probably my favorite. Now, did any of you guys get, uh, endorsements while you were? I had a Gibson endorsement. And what did that, what did that entail? Um, I could get anything for half price. That's funny. I've always I've always wanted to ask that question. Yeah. I've always, but it's do no, no, some people get a better if you were bigger. Yeah, you or if you had everything you know, for free. But price, I just love. I could go to the Gibson place in Times Square, and I was there a lot. I was at a lifetime membership. Or no, it's just kind of faded away <laughs> with the record deal. Um, question number two is: If I gave you a million dollars for charity, which one charity would get, would get it? Oh, it would be uh, my brother and my brother's charity. In memory of his uh, wife who died nine eleven, and okay. that's Christy Smile. Smiles. And we all kind of we've Bogman including annual golf outing. We do what we can to support Christy Smile for sure. Great. I remember going to a couple of shows. For that, oh including. well, yeah. We after nine um, eleven, we did. Uh, you had a big show we, in Irving Plaza. We got the nerve to do. We did December fourteenth and fifteenth, and uh, we thought it'd be good to um, just. We had a lot of fans, right? We lost some friends, big time, and that and you can get uh, those recordings are online of those shows, and and there's a video too. We, I have a, I'll send you a whole package. I have those concerts. I have the um, movie. We will go to them tonight. That Chris Cassidy did, who does a lot of our video stuff too. Mm-hmm. So I'll send you a bunch of stuff. What about the video? Um, Tastes just like it smells. Is that a doc? Uh, yeah, that's that's. I think I only have that on VHS, but I'll send it's all in my attic. That's hysterical, really. Is that's, that not on? That's not online. Is that online? Can I pay for it, or can I pay? You it know, tastes uh, just like it smells. I don't think it was so. ever converted, but it's hilarious. It really, you know, as you know, you talk about the Bobman, you, you could be like, oh, it's such a you know almost famous kind of story, but there's a lot of funny stuff which keeps coming up. I mean, I saw, I looked at a couple clips to research. Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, we. And, when we get together, it's 
pretty hilarious because like we just <laughs> I'm like, glad it's funny not tragic no and, you know we're also alive and and we have a lot of funny stories like yeah. you know we got to keep keep them alive <laughs> and we're all still playing so PJ's working on an album that we've all played on PJ O'Connor and uh, so we're all writing Brendan and I with Ryan Ryan Bros music and uh, and Billy Campion he's still writing he's got a bunch of stuff that he's with Vic Thrill that he's he needs to put out. It's like a double. I think it's a triple album. <laughs> it is. It's a quadruple album. And uh, yeah. Do you guys is is Ryan Brothers music? Are you guys trying to um, write for anybody? I mean, can you? If we're not, we're always writing. I mean, do you have a catalog of songs that you can always offer up for a another artist looking to? Um, know? Well, I'm, we have some stuff that we wrote with Gordon that we're hoping the Violent Femmes will record. Um, so Brendan and I are always writing, and just you, you never know. Mm-hmm. Uh, if it, we'll throw Peter Farrelly, we'll send him stuff, and hopefully, you know, he might work. Right. So, like this, actually, right now is a good writing period because it's slowed down. Like I play a lot, a lot during the summer right. live, and I did last summer just because I could. Yeah, it's the time of year to hole up. And so now it's kind of a good time to write and get work on your studio chops, and it's amazing now when you. You know, talking back to Sausalito and the Bogman and all that that whole experience. Now, I have a little home studio, and Brendan's got one around the corner, which is much better. And he's a great engineer, so we can you know Do it out work, work fast and we're ready. And uh, yeah, today we're going to be mixing the Green Dolphin. Uh, it's the last day of mixing, so that movie will be coming out in 2018. Oh, that's cool. Very cool. Um, so question three is, what would your walk-up music be to the Pearly Gates? Uh, if I could choose it? Yeah. Can't you hear me knocking? <laughs> That's a good one. And then uh, what would, um, what's stuck on repeat in hell? You mean like a song I just can't take? <laughs> yeah. That will, uh, that will torture you in your afterlife for eternity. Um. That's that song. The <laughs> that's your tour mates. No, we didn't tour with. Them. Oh, I'm sorry. Who, who was it? you said? Bear, who did you tour with? Did you say? No, Bear Day Bear Day Bear Day did. That was. Um, what was the other band I just mentioned? Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm song. It'll come to me. I had it before I said the name. Yeah, I Bear mentioned Naked it earlier. Ladies. See now, I don't want to get that in my head. I'll have to get out. <laughs> um, okay. Last question is: uh, What was your best? C- concert um what's the best concert you've ever seen one of the best concerts there's a there's a lot i think one of my first probably was seeing bb uh, king albert king and bobby blue bland at the westbury music fair with the rotating stage when was that one of my that was like in high school i was like okay. that was the concert that changed my life Really? It's yeah, here. yeah. Is that I, something I, you went to on your own, or your well, I was into or? the blues. I was learning how to play guitar and B and BB King and Chuck Berry and all that, and went to uh, Brendan and I and and Tony DeVito went to see this, and it was just changed my life. But since then, I don't know. Stones at the Beacon was pretty cool. I was I was an usher there, so well, I snuck in as an usher. It did stay that way. Was that when they that, played it? That, that's the uh, the Scorsese movie. Okay. That was that's up there, um, and you snuck into that. 
Well, my friend got me in as an usher. That's so funny. That didn't last long. It was just like, you know, once the concert start, started, my leather jacket went on and just disappeared. <laughs> funny. That was a good show. That was pretty cool. Yeah, that was great. Um, or I would probably maybe say the first time I saw The Who, which was like in probably 19, at the Garden in like 98. That was one of the... Oh, I heard that. I heard that, that I, the, just Pete Townsend, my hair stood up. I just went, whoa. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I heard that was a really great tour. Um, one more question is because you, you mentioned... Uh, so are you from a musical family? I mean, it's you and your brother both play, but any of your parents My play parents or? love music. Um, so we grew up with Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, the Clancy Brothers, the Platters. Love the Platters, and um, so we always had music on the house. My dad loves to sing, and still still does. He's in a choir. And then uh, Brennan and I, my sister plays flute. My other sister plays a little guitar. Um, so yeah, I would say so. It's a, guitar, it was a musical household. Is that your first instrument, or do you? Did you yeah, guitar. suffer through whatever? No, guitar was my first. And then I've been playing a lot of mandolin, banjo these days, uh, working on my piano. I started violin lessons, actually. Oh, really? Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, digging it. <laughs> Harmonica, that kind of stuff. Very cool. Well, uh, thanks for doing this. I appreciate you giving uh, my me pleasure. an hour of your time. And it was a pleasure for me to hear all the minutiae of... Uh, Get a big deal. So thanks. Thanks. I had a, I had a blast. <laughs> a pleasure. All right. Thank you, Billy Ryan. You can find Billy and his brother Brendan's music company for commercials and film at ryanbrosmusic.com and the Bogman on Facebook.com slash Bogman. That's L-E-B-O-G-M-E-N. A quick thanks again to Laura Padone for the recording facilities, as well as putting me in touch with Billy in the first place. If you made it this far in the podcast, then be sure to subscribe on iTunes and leave us a rating and comment. And you can always find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook for extra pictures, info, etc., etc. The band behind the song Stuck on Repeat in Hell, of course you all knew it, it's the Crash Test Dummies. They got a live mic on, it's always a panic when you can't think of these things, so... I'm the dummy on that one. Uh, That's all for this time around. We will see you next Tuesday with a whole new show. Please join us then. And until then, good night, Cleveland.